0: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: Why is a country as rich as ours plagued by so much poverty? And why do we tolerate all that inequality? These are hard questions to answer. Everyone gets that. But still, we're confronted by these realities every single day. And some of them are plain to see, like when you drive past someone asking for change on the street. And some of them are more disguised, like the underpaid labor force we rely on for those Amazon overnight prime deliveries. We've built a world that shields us from a lot of the cruelties we participate in. You might even say it's part of the design. And that design makes it harder for us to acknowledge what's happening and interrogate our role in it. But if we make an effort to see it, we can. And if we want to do our part to help, we can do that too. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Matt Desmond. He's a sociologist at Princeton and the author of two books, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, which won the Pulitzer Prize and his latest book, Poverty by America. His new book argues that the privileged in this country, whether they know it or not, are helping to keep the poor poor. And he offers steps and solutions we can all take to address the problem. He calls himself a poverty abolitionist, which is to say he thinks this is a problem we can eradicate if we choose to do it. And that's where we started our conversation. There's this line
2: that I ran across from Tommy Orange, the novelist, that goes, these kids are jumping out of the windows of burning buildings falling to their deaths, and we think that the problem is that they're jumping. And when I read that, I was like, that's the American poverty debate. You know, for over a hundred years the American poverty debate has been about the poor, the jumpers. We should have been focusing on the fire, you know, who lit it? He's warming their hands by it. This is a book about the fire. It's about why there's so much poverty in America and what we can do to finally end it.
1: Well, there are lots of reasons why, and some of them are inconvenient. Um, And your last book, Evicted was very much about the poor and, and how they experience poverty. As you say, it was about bearing witness, which is necessary. But this one is different. This one, in many ways, is about us and our complicity. In this system. And obviously, you made a very intentional choice here. So tell me why.
2: I think it's just the truth. You know, there is so much poverty in America, not in spite of our wealth, but because of it. Many of us consume the cheap goods and services the working poor produce. Many of us are invested in the stock market. And I think we have to face the fact that we contribute. To people's poverty, when we see our returns going up, when sometimes those returns come at the cost of a human sacrifice, we have an imbalanced welfare state. You know, we have a government that does a lot more to subsidize affluence than to alleviate poverty. Many of us benefit from that imbalanced welfare state in the form of tax breaks and other kind of benefits. And you know, we continue to segregate ourselves. We barricade ourselves behind walls made up of laws. We gather affluence behind those walls, and that not only concentrates wealth and privilege, but that concentrates poverty. It's a side effect of our concentrated and hoarded opportunity. So some lives are made small so that others may grow. That means we're connected to the problem and the solution.
1: Is poverty in this country, for some of the reasons you're alluding to just now, a policy failure or a policy success? And what I mean by that is, if what you're saying is true, then we've almost engineered poverty in the sense that it's a choice. We have more than enough resources to deal with this problem, certainly more effectively, and we just don't do it for whatever reason or reason. So in that sense, are we kind of are we kind of getting what we really want out of this? Yes and no.
2: I see it as a moral failure. When you say policy failure, I completely agree with you. But I also that feels like distant. You know, that feels like it's Congress's problem or the other party's problem. I'd like us to make it our problem and start kind of taking personal responsibility for all this poverty in our midst. We often talk about personal responsibility when it comes to the poor, but I'd like to talk about our personal responsibility in being witting or unwitting enemies of low-income families in our in our communities. I do think this is by design. It's really hard to imagine it. Not being intentional. But I also think this is a bad bargain for all of us. You know, all the scarcity and hunger and pain, it drags us all down. And so the call for the end of poverty, which is something I really mean, I'm not just making a rhetorical flourish, I really mean it. I want to end poverty in America. And that call is not only for an expansion of opportunity at the bottom. But it's also for a call for a freer, safer, healthier nation, something that I think a lot of us really pine for.
1: Why do you think so many of us tolerate this? I mean, is it it in part because we're, we're removed? Is it in part because of that distance? I mean, I think we are dealing with an outcome that I think for the most part, most people do not want, not really. And yet it exists. And we're sort of Tacitly complicit in that, but it, it's also tough for the individual, right? We're embedded in this vast, overwhelming Byzantine system over which we have very little control, and into which we are just hurled. And we're doing our best <laughs> to sort of, you know, survive uh, and take care of ourselves and our families as best we can. And it's it's hard for people's sort of zone of concern to extend far beyond that because it's just the necessities of of life and the rest of it. Anyway, that's a long rambling. Half baked question, but maybe there's something in there you can respond to.
2: No, I think there's something to that. But I also think that there's a discipline or a practice that is required forcing us to recognize how many of us are rich, rich, rich. You know, during COVID, Americans bought over 300,000 power boats. One in eight of us own a second home.
1: Wait, 300,000 mm-hmm. power boats? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a bigger number than I would have guessed.
2: Yeah, me too. We spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year on vacation, on our pets. And so a lot of us feel like a lot of us are very used to talking about our lives as a crunch, you know, as a uh, as a press, as something that we can't afford to do more. But man, a lot of us are, by global or historical standards, living lives of incredible opulence. And so I think that we should have a lot of catch in our voice, you know, the next time we... We kind of go there, you know, and especially when we ask, how can we afford to do more as a country? Because I think we can afford to do a lot more as a country.
1: Yeah, well, I think a lot of us, and, and I don't exempt myself from this, a lot of us like to talk about our lives and our situations as though we have less agency than we really do, because it's a kind of justification for our own inertia or our own unwillingness to actually take measurable steps at reducing suffering of other people as opposed to just turning a blind eye and, and getting on with it.
2: This is part of the design though too. Yeah, totally. You know, so if you look at taxes, right, like Reagan famously said, taxes should hurt. They do hurt. Left, right, and center, we all don't like paying. them. But because the weird way that we do taxes in America, it often kind of blinds us to all the ways that we benefit from the tax code, right? So we don't really pay attention to what we're saving and what we're keeping. We're, we're paying attention to what we have to pay that check we have to write. And that taps into a deep psychology, right? There's a long psychological literature showing that when we lose a thousand bucks, that hurts worse than the joy we get from gaining a thousand bucks. So, I mean, that is by design, and it's very understandable why at least with taxes. We kind of go down that way. But this is part of the, the discipline of being a poverty abolitionist, I think. It's kind of just trying to figure out all these micro ways we're bound up with the problem and try to unwind ourselves day by day.
1: Let's step back a little bit and define poverty, or at least you know how you define it. There are, as you know, lots of ways to measure this. How do you measure it, or what's your preferred way to measure it?
2: Poverty is a line. You know, It's an income line, and if you fall below it, you're considered poor, and that line is supposed to measure the ability for you to meet basic necessities. And by our official poverty measure, there's 38 million of us below that line, which means that if the poor founded a country, that country would be bigger than Australia or Venezuela. That's a lot of people. But poverty is much more than a line, right? It's like... Tooth rot on top of like telling your kids they can't have seconds, on top of debt collector harassment, on top of eviction, on top of roughed up by the police, on top of health complications and death, you know, come early and often. And so it's a much deeper problem than just not having enough money. It's about this tight knot of social maladies that it means millions of families are denied safety and security in this rich land. I'm happy to get into debates about poverty measurement and lines and that kind of thing. But I think at the bottom, it's like there's millions and millions of us that are really cut out of the promise that this country offers. And it should should be an issue of serious moral urgency for all of us.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm... I'm not a policy reporter, and and I don't have any expertise in this space. I'm sure you're aware, you know, my colleague, Dylan Matthews, does a lot of reporting on on poverty, and he had wrote a piece a while back taking an issue with part of your thesis. And I'll I'll just sum it up for the audience and have you respond, and then we we can just keep moving along here. But I do think it's worth at least giving people a sense of some of the debates in the background about how we're approaching these sorts of questions. And so the point that Dylan was basically making is that a lot turns on how we measure poverty, and depending on how you do measure it, the answer to the question, has poverty decreased or or stagnated over the last half century or whatever? Well, the answer can be very different. So, obviously... What you're saying is that it really hasn't improved all that much. And I think Dylan's argument is that that's partly because of how we define income. So we have all these social programs like tax credits and food stamps and healthcare that I guess don't count towards income in the official poverty measure. And so they don't reduce the actual poverty rate. But in effect, these programs do reduce poverty. And if you track it, I guess using these more expansive income definitions, you, you get a little different story from the data. Still, a lot to uh, a lot to be unimpressed by and unhappy with in that story, but a different story. You see a, a much bigger drop in poverty, at least when you look at it that way. But yeah, I just wanted to raise that that counterpoint and just and just see how you think about it or how you respond to it.
2: So, in 2011, the Census released a different kind of poverty measure. It's called the Supplemental Poverty Measure. And that measure overcomes many of the limitations the official poverty measure has. It pays attention to regional variation. You know, cost in housing in California is very different than in Alabama. And it pays attention to some government taxes and transfers that are not included in the official poverty measure. And when we released that measure, we officially gained 3 million more poor people in the country. Because any reductions of poverty by counting things like food stamps was more than offset by counting things like rising housing and healthcare costs. Now, researchers at Columbia have found a way to take that improved measure that counts all that government support and stretch it all the way back 50 years. So 50 years ago, 1973, it was 15%. 40 years later, it was 15%. It dropped to 13% in 2018, and plunged in COVID because this historic investment in the American people that the federal government made. But that was the aberration. If you look over the long run, it doesn't change a lot. Dylan has buried the lead. And the lead is this there's a paradox. And the paradox is this government aid on poverty spending has increased, government aid on poverty spending works there's a mountain of evidence that it does you know that things like housing assistance and food stamps protect millions of families from hunger and homelessness every year and yet by a lot of different measures poverty has been persistent and if we want to measure hardship let's measure hardship you know since 2000 eviction filings have increased by 22% the share of families visiting food pantries has increased by 19% since the great recession the number of homeless school kids has increased by 74% since 1989, bad debt, non-mortgage debt held by low-income families has increased by over 200%. Since late 1990s, the number of families reporting receiving food stamps but having no cash income has more than quadrupled. These are very troubling signs on the horizon. And look, I know all the measures that show that poverty has decreased. And we can get into them if we want. We can dig into the weeds if we want. But... If we have measures that show that poverty is decreased when all of these hardship measures are increasing, I think we've got to question the measure. Imagine if we had a measure that said that country is getting a lot happier, but like suicides are up, depression's up, anxiety's up. We'd say, what's up with that measure? So I think the paradox is something that we have to embrace if we're trying to end poverty, because the paradox gets us to this really interesting revelation, which is we're spending more to stay in the same place. And that's because the fundamentals of American society, like the job market and the housing market, are failing the poor. And if we continue to accept all this unrelenting exploitation in the labor market and the housing market, that's a really great recipe for increasing spending just to triage the bleeding. So, you know this book is about that paradox, and this book is about kind of treating the the disease and not just bandaging uh, out the symptoms
1: yeah, I mean just intuitively, I, I like the idea of thinking of it more as hardship, looking at different ways to measure hardship because I think I would assume almost everyone would agree that it is completely arbitrary to just choose some some income threshold like you know thirty thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. and say anyone who makes one dollar more than that is is not poor mm-hmm. and anyone who makes that or a penny less is poor that that seems stupid and and counterproductive on multiple levels that's
2: right and it's divisive right yes because the that division means that hey if you're below that line you can have access to housing assistance and if you're you know a penny above it you can't and so this is a way that some of our anti-poverty you know policies divide the poor from the near poor you know the working class from the poor And so one of the things the book calls for is this kind of bigger tent targeting, you know, this idea of really reaching for and demanding serious investments in ending poverty, but those supported by broad coalitions, you know, those that don't divide us, but unite us.
1: Coming up after the break, what happened to the war on poverty that started way back in 1964? Is there anything we can learn from that?
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. We've had the war on poverty. Everyone knows about that. We've spent a shit ton of money on poverty. I don't know how much. It's a big number. Why hasn't it been more effective? Again, I'm acknowledging that there's debate over how much our efforts have worked and all that, but I'm very comfortable saying whatever we've spent, it it hasn't worked as much as it should have, given how much we've spent. Why the hell is that?
2: So when the war on poverty and the Great Society were launched in 1964— These were a bundle of programs that did things like made food aid permanent, expand social security. These were deep investments in the poorest families in America. And 10 years after these programs were rolled out, the poverty line was cut in half. Big difference. But the war on poverty and the Great Society were launched during a time when the labor market looked a lot different than the labor market today. One in three workers belonged to a union Real incomes were climbing by 2% every year. You know, if you had a job, you had advancement, you had benefits, you had some pride. But as unions lost power, our jobs got a lot worse. You know, one sociologist put it like this. You know, our grandparents, they had careers, and our parents had jobs, and we complete tasks. And now, real wages only increase by 0.3% every year. And if you're a guy without a college degree, your inflation-adjusted wage is lower today than it was 50 years ago. So when the job market was delivering for people, anti-poverty programs were cures. And today the job market, not to mention the housing market and financial exploitation, have made those programs into something like dialysis. You know, they make poverty less less harmful, but they're not making it disappear. You know, we have to fight this with both hands, so to speak.
1: So we cut poverty in half from 1964 to 1974. What really happens in 1974? I mean, I, I hesitate to invoke this boogeyman term, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. Is this just the story of, of neoliberalism? Is this the neoliberal turn and sort of this is just what that has wrought?
2: I don't really know what neoliberalism <laughs> means, so I'm going to like go around that term. <laughs> um, this is a time where organized labor starts to stumble in America for three reasons, right? We're losing the manufacturing base, this kind of fundamental organizing base of unions. Unions were also racist. You know that needs to be put on the table. You know they barred membership to a lot of black and Latino workers. They shot themselves in the foot because of that and didn't allow the American Labor Party to rise to its full strength. And then unions were just attacked. You know a lot of political attacks. And remember when Reagan fired eleven thousand air traffic controllers one year into his presidency and basically got no blowback for it. And so this was kind of the steps that the country started taking to roll back union power, and we were promised something. You know, we were promised that this would unbridle the economy, that we would get all this economic dynamism, and everyone would benefit from it. And, you know, there's a book called Radical Markets by Posner and Weil, and they say, look, we are promised dynamism for inequality, and we got the inequality. But we've actually become less dynamic. The country's actually less productive today than it was when unions were at their full strength.
1: Something that's nuts to me, and I learned this from you in your your book, is that since Bill Clinton was president, only 22 cents of every dollar allocated to poverty reduction reaches the people who need it. Now, how in the world is that possible? Where is the rest of that money going?
2: So this is a program called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or TANF. So it's not all poverty spending, but it is with this one specific program. And this is welfare. This is cash welfare. And this is distributed by block Grants, which is just a wonky way of saying, okay, states, here's some money. We're not going to really pay attention to how they spend it. So states have a lot of discretion with how they spend that, that money, and they use it. So, you know, they use that money to build Christian summer camps and fund abstinence-only legislation or classes, marriage counseling. Some states don't even spend it. You know, Tennessee was sitting on over $700 million in unused welfare aid the last time I checked. It's not a red state issue. Hawaii was sitting on so much they could give every poor kid $10,000, you know, in their state. And so let's talk about what we're talking about, right? We're talking about the poorest kids in Hawaii and Tennessee and elsewhere not getting enough to eat, facing eviction, not getting Christmas presents, not getting school clothes. I mean, that's what we're talking about when these states are squandering the money like this. And so this is part of that paradox we talked about. Not every dollar budgeted in a federal balance sheet means a dollar in a family's hand.
1: I just wonder why you think that is politically tenable. Like, why is there not a political response or a political consequence to that? I mean, I don't know if it's because, you know, we have a way in this country of of having our attention diverted into sideshow issues that sort of distract from the actual material concerns and, and make us, get us exercised about whatever the boogeyman of the moment is, critical race theory or whatever the hell it is, you know. It's just wild to me that this persists. I think most people aren't even aware of it.
2: Yeah, this is on us. This is on us. One of the big disappointments of the last several years is, man, look what we did in COVID. Look what we did to fight poverty in COVID. You know, we cut child poverty almost in half in six months. We reduced evictions to the lowest they've ever been on record. We rolled out this new normal in the country. You know, families had a guaranteed basic income. For a year or so in COVID. And it made a huge difference. And then Congress let it dissolve, let it go away. And when I hear that story, I'm not interested in blaming a political party or that one senator that voted the different way. I'm interested in us. Did we pick up the phone? Like, did we write our congressperson? Did we write editorials or retweeting about we want this to be the new normal? Man, a lot of us were quiet. A lot of us were quiet. And so I think this question is about building political will. This question is about seeing poverty as an abomination, seeing welfare fraud and shortchanging poor families at the highest levels of state government as an abomination and us getting activated on that.
1: I just think we're at a place in the country now where collective action is very, very, very difficult. There's a lot of political hobbyism and a lot of tweeting and that kind of stuff, but it it is very hard to mobilize in this environment for lots of reasons that we don't need to get into, but it, it is a real impediment to the sort of resistance and political movements that are necessary to address these sorts of problems.
2: Yeah, and yet movements are stirring, and it's interesting. A new housing movement is getting off the ground. I don't think we've seen this kind of housing activism since the Great Depression, since renters formed barricades in the streets and literally went to blows with marshals trying to evict families. We're seeing a different kind of labor movement, a nimble, multiracial labor movement that we've never seen before in the country with new labor strategies. It's not your father's labor movement. And so I do think that we are seeing these really encouraging signs of anti-poverty organizing and cross-class solidarity. But for those movements to have power, they really have to grow. We really have to expand the tent and I think that this is a call for a lot of us to start pitching in, no matter our station in life, you know, no matter if we come from poverty or abundance. I think that movements need a lot of folks. They need writers once in a while. God help them. You know, They need accountants, nurses, lawyers. And so I think that joining these movements it is part of what it means to become a poverty abolitionist. But it also, man, it's fun. It's just, it's fun.
1: What are we doing now on this front that you think is actually working the most or the best?
2: A lot of things are working. It's just that we're not dosing it enough. It's kind of like we're giving the patient half the dosage and then wondering why they're not getting better. So let's look at housing. One in four families who qualify for any kind of a housing assistance receive it. So most families just don't get it. But what does the research say? Well, the research says when kids grow up in public housing, man, those kids do a lot better. Than kids who grow up unassisted in the private market and have to face regular eviction and, and uncertainty and rent hikes. And so this is like this other facet of our political debate where we don't need to outsmart this problem, actually. We need to out-hate it. We need to, to dose the program differently. I do think that when we think of like what's working, one thing I want to ask is how could we build out permanent long-term solutions to poverty. And so I think that does mean addressing exploitation at the root level. And exploitation is charged word, you know, it's a loaded word, but for me it just means do you got choice or not? And we've all been kind of in situations where someone's got us over a barrel and we just got to pay for it. And for the poor, that's their life. And so if you look at housing, the way to end exploitation in the housing sector is to expand the choices of poor families. And I think there's a ton of ways to do this. We can build out more social housing. We can invest in land trust so that tenants can build cooperatively held housing that stays permanently affordable. And we can make real efforts to put low-income families into homeownership opportunities. And there's a ton of opportunity there, actually. Last year, 27% of homes were sold for under $100,000, but only 23% of those were financed with a mortgage. So thinking about how to increase mortgages among low-income families and make them homeowners, I think, is one, one clear step. You know, again, like, there's a ton of things that are working. I don't think the working question is the thing. It's like the political will question is the hard part. How do we build a political will to insist that we finally kind of rekindle our ambitions to abolish poverty in this land of dollars?
1: Well, I don't want to run away from that term exploitation. Something you talk quite a bit about, and and I don't know how much people really think about this, but there is an enormously lucrative industry that has been built up around poverty. Lots of people are making lots of money on the desperation of poor people, on their lack of choices. And I'd love for you to say a bit more about that because it really is important.
2: Yeah, sure. So let's stay on the topic of housing for just a second. When I was where she from my last book, I was living in a mobile home park and I was like, man, why would you why would you invest in a mobile home park? And then the landlord let me see his books. And I got to calculate his bottom line. And I got to calculate all the expenses and vacancies and rent mispayments and water bill. And, and I learned that my landlord, who owned the poorest trailer park in the fourth poorest city in the country, was taken home over $400,000 a year after expenses. So I left Milwaukee and I was like, why wouldn't you buy a trailer park? And I think that that led me to start researching this. And I looked in uh, a national data set of landlords and I learned that landlords in poor neighborhoods are not just making more than landlords in affluent neighborhoods, they're often making double. And the reason is pretty simple operating expenses are a lot lower in poor neighborhoods the tax bills lower the mortgage bills lower but rents are not that much lower in low income communities and so why is that you know is that because costs have really gone up and it's a supply and demand issue you know those macroeconomic things matter but what matters is you know when families don't have a lot of choice landlords can take advantage of them and they do and i think that raises a question about who benefits, who benefits. Now, certain landlords certainly benefit, sure, but man, many of us do too. Many of us homeowners do too because you know we're participating in a dynamic to make housing scarce and expensive because that helps us build our wealth. Or you we look at financial exploitation, the fact that like, man, every year, $11 billion in overdraft fees, $1.6 billion check cashing fees, $10 billion, and payday loan fees pulled out of the pockets of the poor that's that's 61 million dollars a year so who benefits right who benefits your banks payday loan companies sure but like i have a free checking account but it's not it's not free right it's not free it's subsidized by piling on all those fees on the backs of the poor and so i say this not to invoke guilt i just say this to evoke a kind of a truth you know, and invoke moral action that I think a lot of us don't want to be exploiters. We don't want to participate in this. You're right. But we do. And I think that we just can't kick this thing down the road anymore. I think we have to take personal responsibility for this problem in our communities.
1: And the pandemic, I mean, did we really miss an opportunity there? I shouldn't say it so fatalistically. I, we can always alter course if we if we want, if we have the will, but did we miss an opportunity to fundamentally reorient our approach to poverty, right? I mean, we, there was this national crisis, global crisis, and the government stepped up in this big way to help materially help people, like the child tax credit, and it showed very clearly that we can do that if we want, and then we just said, all right, all right, pandemic's over, back to normal.
2: When the pandemic hit, America immediately had an eviction crisis. We were the only rich democracy to have one. It's not like Germany and France suddenly were worried about evictions, but we were. We were. And so I spent a lot of time working with folks in Washington, pushing for an eviction moratorium, and then pushing for writ relief, emergency writ relief, you know, after that moratorium was lifted. And the government responded, right? The government responded because of these unrelenting, amazing pressure by housing organizers all around the country with $46.5 billion in rental relief. That's a big amount. That's like doubling HUD's budget, right? But you can't drop $46.5 billion from a plane, it turns out. You know, you got to create distribution channels. And it's hard. And when we were creating those channels, everyone was complaining about how bad the government was doing. Everyone was tweeting about it and writing about it. Planet Money did a show called The Rent Relief is Too Damn Slow. Everyone was was given the program a hard time with justification, but guess what? Then it started working. And it reached a million families, and then 5 million, and then 10 million. And it reduced evictions to the lowest they've been ever, ever on record. Months and months and months after the moratorium ended. And we said this. We were quiet. And I think that, again, we can point to this policy or this lawmaker, but our silence implicates us in this story, too. And many of us who are podcast listeners plugged into the political scene were very fluent in the language of critique, but very bumbling in the language of repair and celebration. And I think that we just have to cultivate that language too we did miss an opportunity and one of the reasons we did is because of us we didn't reach the the mountaintop but we got halfway there and it was a damn good view
1: why do you think that is obviously it is much easier to point your armchair in the direction of history and and bitch (laughs) about this or that thing than it is to to actually get up and make sacrifices and, and do something i mean maybe it's just that simple
2: Paul Alinsky talked about the difference between a a real radical and rhetorical radical. And, you know, he said a real radical does whatever it takes to get it done. You know, he or she wants real wins. This was like back in the day when guys had long hair, right? And he's like, if your hair gets in the way of you getting your message across, a real radical cuts his hair. He joins the church if that's where the people are. He learns to talk in a different way. And I think that that's different than what Alinsky might call this rhetorical radical, a radical in speech or social media presentation. But are we getting out? Are we cutting our hair? Are we seeking those real wins? I was with Heather McGee last night, the author of *The Some of Us, and we did an event in New York, and she, she made this really brilliant point where she said that many members of the left and the progressive parts of America— they want something different than the democratic establishment. But the democratic establishment delivered in a major way to families during COVID. But those progressives that want something different, want want new leadership, new blood, they have a hard time giving credit where credit is due because they feel constrained by that. And I, I get that. I think that's right. I think that's a real dynamic. But I think that one thing that dynamic does is sends a message to our leaders. They can make these deep, deep investments in fighting poverty and not get a lot of political capital for it. It's risky these days to go on social media and cheer for something, actually. You get a lot more credit if you chop something at the knees,
1: but... No, that's where the likes and retweets are. Yeah. And the critiques.
2: Yeah. But I worry. I don't worry. I know that poor families in the future are going to pay for that dynamic and for our silence and our chic nihilism among the progressive left.
1: How can the American left do a better job of fighting poverty? That's coming up after one more quick break. This is part of the problem on the left at the moment where there's this deep skepticism of our political institutions to the point where where a lot of people just want to throw them off the problem is that if you want to get things done you need to use the machinery of government to reform those institutions in order to improve people's lives and if you give up on that you're really leaving yourself only two choices total revolution or quietism or just you know tweeting out your your rage but that's not going to feed anyone that's not going to help anyone find a house
2: Yeah, I mean, so the left is huge, right? And I think that this conversation, this point, right, is often kind of the left that is very online. And I think that there's this other left, which is on the ground, right? And they are strategic, and they are working with institutions, and they are coming up with big, ambitious, and creative strategies to address these problems. And they're hopeful, because they're often winning, And so I think for us, getting more in touch with that part of the left is soul-refreshing, and it's also incredibly instructive. Right before COVID, I was hanging out with this group called United Renters for Justice Tenant Rights Group in Minneapolis, made up of mostly undocumented immigrants, folks of color, spoke a lot of languages, communicated across Google Translate app, and they were facing a landlord that they felt was negligent. And... They said, Hey, landlord, uh, sell us your buildings. We're gonna we are going we want to buy your buildings and make them a co-op. And he was like, Okay, well, seven million dollars. And they're like, be right back, you know, and they started raising money. And but things came to a head. You know, they actually raised the seven million dollars and and were ready to make an offer, but he passed out eviction notices to every tenant. So they were gonna be homeowners or homeless. And um, it all came down to this first eviction trial with this woman named Chloe Jackson. We went to a jury trial, which is unusual, but we were waiting for the jury in this uh, snowy day. And this woman, Takara Adler, turned to me and she said, you know what's taking the jury so long is they're asking, why do these tenants want this raggedy building? And it's because people have forgotten how to dream. And when I heard that, I felt so convicted. I felt man, maybe I've forgotten how to dream. And Chloe won that case and the tenants bought those buildings. And today it's a co-op. And it's still running strong. And I talked to Chloe the other day, and she was like, you know, before we were just neighbors, and now we're a family. That part of the left, right? That part of the left that's out there, that's getting stuff done, that's forming community that's working. I think that part of the left is, is incredibly attractive to me and something that I want to be part of.
1: I feel the same way. I mean, what you're talking about there is community, real community. And the truth as far as I can see, it is that there is a low ceiling on the kind of community that's possible in a radically unequal society. Because, you know, it's about the bonds of culture, and culture is ultimately rooted in, in a shared way of life. And, and when people are effectively living lives that are unrecognizable to one another, there are real limits on our capacity for empathy. Maybe there shouldn't be, but there are. And this is why I think the problem of of inequality and the segregation you're talking about is really driving this problem and, and making it more and more difficult to transcend.
2: Yeah, that's spot on. You know, in the book, I talk about this dynamic private opulence and public poverty that's locking in when you have a lot of rich folks living in the same community as a lot of poor folks. And if the rich folks get their way, you know, they divest and divest more from the public, we used to want to be free from bosses, and now we want to be free from bus drivers, right? We, we divest from public education and public transportation. We don't need public parks. We can buy our own. We don't need public swimming pools. We can dig one in our backyard. And as that dynamic of private opulence and public poverty persist, the public sector itself degrades, and opportunities for that cross-class connection, Where you bump it into folks on the bus or in the park or in that pool, they get rarer. And so you're right. I think that dynamic has to be the counter moved. And we need a reinvestment in the public square, not only, you know, for the benefits of poor folks, but also for our benefit, for all our benefit. We pay a spiritual cost for this. Like we do emotional violence to ourselves. And I think this is harder for a policy wonk to talk about, but there is a kind of emptiness to affluent America today that I think should be reckoned with. The book is calling for some of us to take less, to take less from the government. But the book is also calling for us to gain back our humanity, which I think we've lost with all this accelerated inequality and segregation.
1: The public disinvestment thing, I mean, that, that is such a good example of the sort of complicity that you're talking about. And and again, I, I really want to lean into that, right? Where this this cycle in which people rely less and less on public services, we become less and less committed to supporting them, and that leads to their obliteration. And it's just, it's an illustration of how we can participate in the system in our own ways by just merely adapting to the society we find ourselves in. And it produces this horrid outcome that no one should really want, but we participate in it in a very unthinking way, because so much about our politics and our culture sort of militates in that direction. And it's very easy to get ensnared by it, I guess.
2: Yeah, we've become too easily pleased. We've got this nice car, but we're stuck in traffic for two hours, right? This is kind of an argument my colleague here at Princeton, Kevin Cruz, has made about Atlanta because white folks divested from public transportation because they were trying to uphold the walls of segregation. Everyone paid for that now and the traffic jam that we sit in now is a result of that and so i think that this is another example of how you know all this poverty our midst drags us all down
1: well then let me ask you i mean obviously that what we have to do and and by we i i just mean anyone anyone who wants to do more to reduce suffering is we have to convince more people that we would all be better off without so much degradation in our society so how do we do that? I mean, it feels like such a strange question to even have to ask, but here we are. How do we make people care about poverty?
2: So there's this quote from a book called The Almanac of Sands, and it goes like this. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And I think that that's our challenge, you know, and our challenge is to make a case for the end of poverty as something that we all are pining for and we want, and we can feel this, we can feel it. We can feel it in this ickiness we feel when we go out to a restaurant and we just, we don't know if, you know, folks that are serving us are taken care of. We can feel it when we spend the night at a hotel and we just, we don't know. And we get into that Uber or that Lyft or that taxi. We can feel it when we get on that bus and we see the exhausted faces of the working poor. We can feel it when we are those faces. And we are all working multiple jobs just to stay on the treadmill. And so I think that there are winners in this country, for sure. But that winning comes at someone else's cost. And that transaction is a corrupting one. It corrupts all of us. And I think that... Many of us want a nation where we know whatever happens to our kids, they're not going to fall into destitution, where we are certain that we are not one divorce or car accident away from real precarity. We want a nation that's fair. We want a nation that is not divided and is not so unsafe. And I think for me, that nation is a nation without poverty. The end of poverty, it's something to stand for. It really is a national disgrace. The end of poverty also doesn't mean everything's perfect, but it does mean something a lot better than the society that we all have inherited, I think.
1: I mean, we are a cruel country in lots of ways, but I don't think this is a country full of cruel people. I think we tolerate cruelty to the extent that we're removed from the realities of the cruelty, and that's sort of one of the more diabolical features of this society is that it really does bracket us, or it really does remove us from the consequences of our choices in all kinds of ways, which allows us to move through the world without taking accountability for our our choices.
2: And I think this is both convicting and unabsolving and hopeful. It's hopeful. At the base level, on the ground level with the American people, A lot of us want this. Most Americans want a higher minimum wage. Most Americans don't think the rich are paying their taxes. Most Americans, left and right, believe that poverty is the result of unfair circumstances, not a mole failing. There's this little scene in the book that I love where this group called One Fair Wage is protesting in Albany, made up of mostly service workers, Black and Latino women. And it's the same day as a Stop the Steal rally. They didn't know it. But the Stop the Steal guys, you know, come over, these guys in white hats, red hats, I should say. And they say, what are you guys protesting? And they say, well, we're fighting for higher wages. And, you know, the Stop the Steal protesters say, we want higher wages too. And they shake their hands, they join the protest. Now, this isn't to dismiss or, you know, real polarization or real division in the country. But, man, I think on these basic issues, let's make sure people are paid a living wage. Let's make sure families have an affordable roof over their head. Let's make sure we all have access to decent healthcare. A lot of us want this. And I think that the divisions in the country on these issues are certainly less pronounced than they are between us and our electeds. The electeds are polarized from us. And here again is where the movements come in.
1: I think that's right. And I I guess the last thing I'll say here is just to kind of bring it back to where we started. The system we have isn't the fault of any individual listening to this right now, and this is ultimately a problem. Only the state can effectively address, but that deeper point remains, and it is actionable. Like all of us as consumers are participating in this, and every time we vote no on a measure that might boost public services, every time we punish a company when they don't give us the cheapest possible price on some good, Every time we turn to Amazon for that sweet, sweet overnight prime delivery, every time we're involved in a transaction that relies on underpaid, non-unionized workers, we are doing our little part to keep this thing humming along. And I appreciate your call to think of ourselves as poverty abolitionists, which really just involves being, at minimum mindful about the decisions we do make as consumers and, more importantly, as citizens.
2: Right. And this is a call not to let government or corporations off the hook. It's the opposite. It's not the idea that these little changes that we can make in our lives, step by step, that those are sufficient. But the idea is when we start doing that, we can not only face the fact of how many of us are intertwined with the lives of the poor, but also start building the political will to demand for big, powerful change. It's true that those of us that have amassed the most power and the most capital, we bear more responsibility for this issue. But it's also true that that can let us off the hook. And so I do think the more we can recognize all those connections the more we can start striving in our daily lives and our political projects to abolish poverty. And, you know, this is something that shares with other abolitionist movements the conviction that poverty is an abomination that shouldn't be tolerated. And it shares with other abolitionist movements to move it to abolish slavery or the prison, for example, the conviction that all the suffering and benefiting from someone else's pain corrupts all of us.
1: Once again, the book is called Poverty by America. Matt Desmond, this was a pleasure. Thanks for coming in.
2: No, thanks, Sean. Really appreciate you.
1: Patrick Boyd engineered this episode, Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, we'd love to know what you think. Drop us a line at, the gray at vox.com. and if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends and your family and everyone else on all the socials. That stuff really helps. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.